you leading us this morning. Before we turn to John chapter 11 once again, let's turn to Psalm 144. I read this psalm this week in my TOG. It stands for my time alone with God. T-A-W capital G. Often people refer to them as quiet times or devotional times. I've been actually attempting to read a psalm and a proverb every day in 2018. And so on January 1st, I read Psalm 1 and Proverbs chapter 1. On January 2nd, I read Psalm 2 and Proverbs chapter 2 and so on. February 1st, I read Psalm 31 and Proverbs chapter 1. Now, I can't actually, if I do that in 2008, I'll have read through the book of Psalms two plus times and the book of Proverbs 12 times in the year. And I'm not saying that I do it every single day and never fail. I can't say that. But what I can say is that I do it more often than I don't do it. And it's a habit that I would recommend that you engage in every day. Just take time alone with God and quietly read his word. Anyway, back to Psalm 144. Look at verse 1. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. O Lord, what is man that you should take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are like passing shadow. That verse 1 of Psalm 144, because I was in the midst of preparing for this morning, and the passage that we're looking at in John chapter 11, seemed to jump off the page. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. At prayer meeting this past Tuesday night, and by the way, Cynthia and I would encourage you to enjoy, to join in with this group. It has become one of the highlights of our week on any night that we can attend. It's uh, led by Ray and Margaret Atkinson. The meeting begins right at 7 o'clock, and they allow us to pick a couple of favorite hymns that they sing, I listen, and they're thankful for that. We share additional prayer requests and any updates that we may have about things that we're praying for, and then we get right down to the business of praying. Ruth Post, this past week, actually picked two of the three hymns that were sung. The first suggestion was number 644 in our hymn book. Onward, Christian Soldier. Do you know it? Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Now, I'm guessing that not many of us in this room this morning, in fact, most of us, will have known nothing but peace in our lifetime. The closest we ever come to war is on November the 11th, 
Remembrance Day each year. When we pause to reflect and remember those who've paid the ultimate sacrifice so that you and I can enjoy this lifetime of peace. I hope as Christians living in Canada during this season of prosperity and peace, we haven't been lulled to sleep. Watching TV news, news reports of war is not the same thing as experiencing it personally. In fact, I think it desensitizes us to the realities of war. After all, the messenger or the medium used to inform us of the casualties of war these days is the same Hollywood-dominated medium that bombards us with a fictional depiction of real life through its popular sitcoms and movies. And now, even fake news. As followers of Jesus, I hope that we're not lulled to sleep or that we lose sight of reality. The scriptures offer a genuine believers a different, a different perspective of reality. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 for just a moment. Beginning at verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So, so what are the implications of these verses? And the verses that follow, what's the Apostle Paul saying? He's using the armor of a first century soldier as a metaphor for how his followers of Jesus can prepare to stand firm in a world that is not user-friendly for those who have been called to follow Jesus. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Gospel ministry is a battlefield. It's not a playground. This morning we're going to see how the responses of some following Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus from the dead mobilized his opposition. As a result, we'll understand the need to prepare both individually and collectively to face gospel ministry opposition as we celebrate, demonstrate, and proclaim the gospel in the midst of a crooked 
and perverse generation, as the Apostle Paul refers to it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. You and I will encounter opposition. Maybe not life-threatening opposition, but we'll certainly encounter opposition. Gospel ministry is a battlefield, not a playground. If you haven't already, let's turn to John chapter 11 and continue our study through this gospel according to John. If you will, please stand with me, if you can, or able, for the reading from God's Word, beginning at verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw, that he had, what, he, saw what he had done, that's Jesus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council, and they were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the, and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. This is God's word to us this morning. You may be seated. Father, you have revealed yourself as Almighty God. King David in Psalm 144 addressed you as my rock, my loving kindness, my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I can take refuge. And yet at the same time, you also trained his hands for war and his fingers for battle living a God-honoring life in a world full of distractions and deterrence, even opposition, can be a battle. Thank you for notes of encouragement, like the one you sent through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Father, may that become part of our story. May we be kept from fear and discouragement, from trying to manage the challenges of life in our own strength, from looking to alternatives, whether it be people, money, or powers. May we look to you 
and come to know you enough to trust you in the midst of the battle. Prepare us so that we'll remain faithful celebrators, demonstrators, and proclaimers of the gospel. By your power and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The response of some to Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus from the dead mobilized his opposition. In chapter 11, the, it's all about the seventh of seven miracles that John includes in this gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And most would agree that it's the miracle of all miracles. Raising Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the tomb for four days already. Remember, even his sister, Martha, objected to opening the tomb. Because why? Well, verse 39, there will be a stench for he has been dead for four days. But Jesus reminded Martha that Lazarus' death was to display the glory of God. Look at his rhetorical question at the end of verse 40. Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And the answer is, yes. Yes, you did say that. And then remember his response when he first heard of Lazarus' sickness back in verse 4. This sickness is not to end in death. So it was no surprise to Jesus when we read in verse 44. The man who had died came forth, bound and hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Imagine. Imagine you standing in the midst of the crowd on that particular day. What's going through your mind as you see this wrapped body in grave clothes standing at the opening of this tomb? How would you respond? Unbelievable. Most of us, I hope, can relate to verse 45. Therefore, Many of the Jews who came to Mary, I notice that Martha is not mentioned, which would seem to affirm what we already suspected. Martha was the doer, right? She had a to-do list. She wasn't the relational kind, where Mary was just the opposite. So these people who had come out from Jerusalem were really focusing on Mary, the relational of the two sisters. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Boy, I hope that would be the case for me. But let me caution us. Be careful. Don't forget the Apostle John's earlier reports. Not all faith is created equal. Now, listen, a faith 
based on miracles is certainly better than no faith at all. And after all, this was an exceptional display of supernatural power to raise Lazarus from the dead. But turn back with me for a moment to John chapter 2. Verse 23. Jesus is once again at a, a Passover, the first Passover that he attended when, when he began his public ministry. In verse 23. And during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Verse 24 begins with, but. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Flip over to John chapter 6 and look at verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, this is Jesus speaking, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. How do you explain that? How is that possible? Flip over to Luke chapter 8. Jesus here tells a parable that may help us understand how confessions of faith are not all created equal. By the way, this same parable is found in Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 4 as well. But here in Luke chapter 8, look at verse 4. When a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to the sea to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and it, with it, and it choked it out. Other seed fell into good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. Look over to verse 11. Jesus goes on to explain the meaning of the parable. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes it away, takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns 
These are the ones who have heard. As they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now this parable is describing responses to the word of God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, we read, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But not all responses to the word of God are created equal. So only time would tell whether these Jews who believed in Jesus as a result of seeing what he had done by raising Lazarus from the dead would in fact their lives give testimony that they had a genuine saving faith. A life that would bear 30, 60, 100 fold. Faith based on miracles is better is not is better than no faith at all. But look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them things which Jesus had done. Allow me to this point just to run through our exposure to the Pharisees up to this point in the account, in John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. You remember, we were introduced to the Pharisees back in John chapter 1, when they sent a delegation out to investigate John the Baptist in the wilderness. In John chapter 3, we're introduced to Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews who had slipped in to talk to Jesus under the cover of darkness. In John chapter 7, we find them joining forces with the chief priests and sending temple officers out to seize Jesus. They need to take control of this young rogue rabbi from the province of Galilee. The growth of his popularity amongst the people was alarming. Someone had to step in and protect Judaism. In John chapter 8, they used, the Pharisees used a woman who they had actually caught in the act of adultery to set up a trap where they might put Jesus into a no-win dilemma. In John chapter 9, the Pharisees are publicly embarrassed by the man who had been born blind. You'll remember they had gone out to investigate this miracle in hopes that they could somehow discredit Jesus by proving that the miracle was a hoax, even though he had created brand new eyes for this man born blind. But these Pharisees back in verse 16 of John chapter 9 had already concluded that this man was not from God because he had healed the man on the Sabbath. See, they were all about protecting and preserving and 
keeping the traditions of the, of the elders and the law of Moses. What we need to understand as we come to this section of John chapter 11 is these Pharisees were part of Jesus' official opposition. John often refers to them as the Jews, the ones who had back in John chapter 5 already decided that they were going to kill him. The Pharisees would have been very much a part of this gang of hostiles. And these are the ones that the some who had been there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they went to the Pharisees. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. I guess as we sit here this morning, we can kind of speculate on what motivated them to do that. Maybe they wanted to to gain favor with the religious elites of the day. Or perhaps they thought they were doing the right thing in trying to protect Judaism. Or maybe they were just looking for a clarification or explanation. They're just totally confused what took place and how in the world could a man raise someone who'd been dead for four days. Who knows what, would, what motivated them? But for whatever reason, they were not prepared to drink the Kool-Aid that Jesus was serving that day. And so they went off to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And what we have now is an informed opposition. Look what happens next in verse 47. Therefore the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council, and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Well, that's quite a concession, wouldn't you say, at the end of that verse? These are the enemies of Jesus saying, for this man is performing many signs. If, those, if his enemies were saying that, my goodness, why would we question the fact that Jesus was performing miracles? Because these Pharisees had no authority to act on their own, once again they're teaming up with the chief priests. And they called a meeting of the council. That's the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was something like probably our provincial governments in that they were empowered by the city of Rome to be the ruling body in Israel. They exercised a wide range of authority over civil, criminal, and religious matters. But rather than have the conservatives, the liberals, and the NDPs, the Sanhedrin had the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were made up of priests and Levites. They had seats on the council because they were, well, because they had the right DNA. They're like our royal family. They were born into these positions. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were from the middle class. They had the hearts of the people because they were the teachers of the law. They're out among the common folk. The council was ruled over by the high priest who is going to be introduced in the next verse. 
It's interesting for us to note how political opponents, even in the first century Palestine, can make strange bedfellows when they share a common enemy. And on this occasion, it was Jesus. Initially, it was an informed opposition, but now it's a consolidated opposition. Look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's a concerned opposition. And what are they concerned about? Remember, they are the ruling council. What did we say? They had far-ranging authority over civil, criminal, and religious matters. So what are they concerned about? Well, it tells us. Our place and nation. You see, this council was committed, absolutely committed, to maintaining the status quo. Rome had empowered them to self-govern the Jews on their behalf. And boy, the Sanhedrin was in charge. Anything and anyone who threatened that arrangement should be looked at as a national threat to be eliminated. Again, Jesus was their man. But what should have this national council, this Sanhedrin, what should have they been concerned about? The truth, right? And yet, they were more concerned with preserving their own political standing and personal lifestyles. An informed opposition, a consolidated opposition, a concerned or threatened opposition, and now an advised opposition. Caiaphas, the Roman-appointed high priest of the day, was chairman of the council. He added his voice to the mix in verse 49. Notice, you know nothing at all. Wow. How'd you like to be serving under that chairman? Unfortunately, in today's climate, we might be able to picture that kind of way too easily, that kind of arrogant, abrasive, obnoxious political leader. But look at the end of the verse. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not purpose. Now at this point in the story, something changes. The narrator steps from behind the curtain onto center stage and into the spotlight. Look at verse 51 and 52. Now he did not say this on his own initiative. We wouldn't know this apart from the narrator. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God 
who are scattered abroad. So John, reflecting on this episode, invites us to see Caiaphas' words as the words from God. Not unlike many of those Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, and Malachi, to name just a few. God was providing us a glimpse through Caiaphas of future events. In fact, through the words of an unbelieving, arrogant high priest. How amazing is that? That God would use him to send a message. Jesus was going to die for the nation. One man for the many. And not just for the nation, but for all of Israel. And to gather those who are the children of God. That, my friends, is substitutionary atonement. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The just for the unjust to bring you safely home to God. That happens when we admit that what the Bible teaches us about ourselves is absolutely true. All of us have sinned. There are no exceptions. And we repent of that sin, turn our backs on it, want nothing to do with it, believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. When we believe that with all of our hearts, and then confess with our mouths that Jesus is the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God. When we do that, we surrender our, the leadership of our lives to his lordship. John's reason for writing this gospel becomes a personal reality in our lives. John chapter 20, verse 31 these things I've written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's eternal life. Life both now and forever. So far we have an informed opposition, a consolidated opposition, a concerned or threatened opposition, and an advised opposition. Finally, we come to a resolved opposition. Look at this, verse 53. Here's their resolve. So from that day on, they planned together to kill Jesus. It's only a week away, folks. Approximately one week away. And Jesus would hang on a cross. How sad is that? following a miracle of miracles, a visible expression of the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Verse 4. Clearly, for some, enough will never be enough when it comes to the evidence. You and I can never convince, argue, 
or debate someone into the kingdom of God. The best that we can do is continue to celebrate, demonstrate, and proclaim the gospel. Even when facing a mobilized opposition, an opposition that may even be informed, consolidated, concerned, or threatened, advised, and even resolved. Jesus told his closest companions, If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Gospel ministry is a battlefield. It's not a playground. The gospel is inherently divisive. Inherently. Allow me to share a selection of passages that support that idea. And I've written them on your outline that you received when you came in this morning. So just listen carefully to these and we'll work through them quickly. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 36, we read, Do, you, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother, and a man's enemy will be the members of his household. Now you may be something, wait a minute, Matthew, come on. You're just being way too dramatic. Over the top. It's interesting, because Luke reinforces exactly the same message. And remember, these Scripture writers, they couldn't take out the highlighter or use bold print or underline the points that they wanted to emphasize. But what they could do is repeat the message. It's like they're saying, don't miss this point. This is important. This will be on the final exam. Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, and two against three. They'll be divided. Father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against against mother-in-law. The gospel is inherently divisive. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. Interesting. And yet some Jews who witnessed the sign of all signs, the miracle of all miracles, still refused to believe while they were asking for signs. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 and 11 invites us to see our opposition a little bit differently. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and 
persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13 were ones that God used to open my eyes to spiritual realities, that God had demonstrated his own love for me and that Christ died for my sins. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13 says, and This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. The gospel is inherently divisive. You are either a genuine believer or a genuine unbeliever. You either have the Son of God or you don't have the Son of God. And if you have him, you need to be prepared because gospel ministry is a battlefield, not a playground. Be prepared to face gospel opposition. How? How can we be prepared to respond appropriately to opposition in our attempts to be faithful in our celebrations, our demonstrations, and our proclamations of the gospel? Let me give you two negatives and four positives. Which would you like first? Let's start with the negatives. Get those out of the way. Number one, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you face opposition and you share the gospel or attempt to share the gospel. Secondly, don't take it personally unless you should. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 reads, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Folks, if we offend people by being rude, dismissive, or arrogant, that's on us. But if they decide that the gospel is offensive or foolishness, that's on them. Don't take it personally. Here's four things that we can do. Actually, another one came to mind, so there's going to be five. Number one, and this is most important, pray. Pray. Number two, know what you believe. How's that for an advertisement for tonight's seminar? I just thought I'd slip that in. Actually, it does relate. It's a legitimate commercial break, but I couldn't resist. We just read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is within you. We have to know what we believe in order to give appropriate answers. Number three, stick together. The Christian life was never intended to be a solo flight. That's why God designed the church so that we would have this faith community. Community. Common plus unity. It's community. It's a place where we can face 
the challenges of life together, which include facing opposition to the gospel. Fourthly, trust the Lord. Psalm 20, verse 17, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Isaiah, we've already used it in a prayer. Chapter 41, verse 10 is one of my favorites. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Number five, run. I don't want us to go away thinking that the only alternative here is martyrdom. Look at verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness, to a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. The end of John chapter 10 the Jews were trying to get a hold of him, right? And he escaped their grasp and went to the far side, the other side of the Jordan River. He escaped. The Apostle Paul, actually it was Saul at that time. He had just been converted. He's in the city of Damascus. They lowered him outside the city wall through a hole in the wall in a big basket so that he could escape. Retreating may be the best alternative, may be what God wants for that season. Okay, that's enough. Two things to avoid, five things that will help us to prepare when we face opposition as we celebrate, demonstrate, and proclaim the gospel. Let's pray together. By the way, I should mention that we've already won. We're on the winning team. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to believers in the city of Rome, people who he had never met, he wanted them to know that he was not ashamed of the gospel. For it was the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is for everyone and anyone who will take the time to listen. May we be used both individually and collectively as a local church to celebrate and demonstrate and proclaim the gospel in ways that, that sees many believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And may we be prepared at the same time for some who will choose to oppose us, say nasty things about us and to our faces. May we be gracious and respectful, but stand firm, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. By your power and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.